Happy Super Bowl Sunday. Go Cardinals. Rookie of the year, Kyler Murray. If you haven't heard the speech, shocked me, surprised me. Um, the right at the end of the speech, his acceptance speech, he says, I'd like to thank my savior, Jesus Christ, which I was like, whoa, okay, all right. I like that, that's fun. Uh, my name is Mike Zerati. Uh, I am part of the preaching team here at Compass Church and Really excited to be here with you today. Uh, had a really nice outfit picked out for today, even with a sport coat, but then I was like, it's Super Bowl Sunday. I gotta wear the jersey. Um, and the Cardinals, I have a Fitz one that I would have preferred to wear, but it's really big on me, so I wanted to look good. So anyway, you guys doing good? Everyone good? All right, so we are, uh, this is now week three or four in our series, The Story of the King, okay? Uh, this is why I need manuscripting. This is why I manuscript my message, because if I have to remember something, I had to look. I forgot the name of this series that I'm preaching on right now. It's just embarrassing. Okay. Um, so we are in the book of Mark. I know where we're at. I just don't remember what we called it. Uh, we're in the book of Mark, and uh, we're going to be in Mark all the way through Easter. We're really excited about that. And, and really, as we've seen in this series, we've seen that Jesus is being declared, and really, we're discovering his declaration that he is king. We've seen that Jesus is a king like no other king. He claims authority greater than any king before or since. And really, so what we're going to do throughout the book, we're going to continue to do is ask the question, is Jesus king? Does he have authority? Is he the rightful king? And is he my king? Okay? So last week with Pastor Gabe preaching, we saw in Mark chapter 2, where a paralytic was lowered by his buddies through the, down the roof, and he's lowered, and, and he, they're, they're seeking Jesus' healing. This guy's paralyzed, okay? And Jesus does this amazing thing. He goes, well, I forgive you of your sins, right? If you were here, you remember this. It's, it's, it's an amazing, amazing story here. I'm motivated by love and grace, Jesus looks at the paralytic man, and he says, I forgive you of your sin." And all the Pharisees and scribes are around going, time out, you can't do that, only God can do that. And Jesus is like, yeah, I know. I am God. But what we learned in this is that our greatest need is not our sickness, it's not our brokenness, it's not, it's not uh, our that we're paralyzed. Our greatest need, our deepest need is in fact our sin. So, of course, as we unpacked this last week, we, we, we see that there's some Jews, some scribes and Pharisees that are pretty upset that Jesus is blaspheming, right? He's literally blaspheming. He's, he's doing something that only God can do, and that's legal. You can't do that. He's blaspheming. But in Mark 3 this week, Jesus is going to do something. He's going to make a claim so, outra so outrageous, they can't call it anything. They don't even have a word for it. Today in Mark 3, we're going to see that Jesus declares that he's not come to reform religion, but in fact, he's come to replace it with himself. 
Okay, so Mark chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, that's where we're going to be parked today. But in order to understand what's going on here, we actually have to back up into Mark chapter 2, starting verse 23. We're going to read this real quick because we've got to get through this in order to know what, what Jesus is trying to do in Mark 3, okay? So if you have your Bibles, we are in Mark chapter 2. Remember, we've got really two texts today. The first one is Mark 2, 23 through 28, and the next one is Mark 3, 1 through 6, okay? So... Mark 2, 23 through 28. We're going to read this together. Um, This is on the topic of the Sabbath. Here we go. Mark 2, 23 through 28. On the Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields. As they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. So this is Jesus, and he's got his disciples with him. And the Pharisees were saying to Jesus, to him, Look, what they're doing is not lawful on the Sabbath. And Jesus said to them, Have you ever read what David did? When he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God, not okay unless you're a priest, in the time of Abathar the high priest and ate the bread of the presence, which is not okay, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat. And then he gave it to those who were with him. This is like crazy stuff that David was doing. And so Jesus says to him, he's basically saying, well, look, I mean, I know I'm not supposed to, but look what David did. There was a reason for it. And then he says this, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. So maybe you're here today and you're going, okay, I haven't been to church in a while and I'm not really sure I know a ton of the language. We need to unpack what this word Sabbath is. What is the Sabbath? Where did it come from? What does it mean? Okay? So that's where we're going to start and we're going to use Mark Mark 2.23 to really help us unpack this. So um, here's what we need to do. We need to understand that the Sabbath was first established by God for the nation of Israel in the Ten Commandments, as, as noted in Exodus chapter 20, verse, twen, verse 10. Twen. New word. <laughs> New number. Mic math. Okay. Um, Exodus 20, verse 10. You shall remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. It's one of the Ten Commandments. Okay? Very, very important. The Ten Commandments were a big deal to the Israelites. Okay? And then it's established in 2010, the ver- the, you know, the verse, not 2010, 2010, just in case. It's established in 2010, and then it's expanded on in Exodus 31, 14. Now, I, I don't really have time to read this to you, but, uh, but I want to make sure that you understand. In Exodus 31, 14, if you have time to go back and read that, I want you to pay attention to the harshness of the language. When Moses is expanding on what the Sabbath day is, he's talking about how it's this special um, day that's meant for rest, Okay, so you worked for six days, now you get the seventh day. You're like, oh, cool, God wants us to rest. Whoa, like it's way deeper than that, right? So then God says it's a special time, sign between um, him and the Jews. Like this is how people will know you're, you're one of my people. And then he talks about how basically you're not allowed to do any work. It's as specific as he gets. No work whatsoever, right? And then he says this, anyone who breaks the Sabbath should be put to death. Okay. Wow. All right. So I thought we were at a two, but we're at like a 92 out of 10 here, Moses. Like this is a big deal. So when you, when you look back at the text and you understand what, it, what God is giving Israel, the Sabbath really, I, what I want you to understand is not only is it a day of rest, but it's an important day for the Israelites. It's the very top of their list in terms of importance in one of the um, traditions that they, with, that they hold. 
The other thing I want you to see is that if you look at, at Exodus 20 and 31, initially as the Sabbath is given, it's not very specific. You say you can't do any work. Well, what do you mean by work? And what does any mean? Like there's nothing really specific. It was rather general. That was initially how it worked. Later on, Israel added some specifics. It was turned into 39 prohibited acts later on by Jewish tradition. They went so far as to establish how far one could travel on the Sabbath day, how far you could walk. It's 200 cubits, which, which translates to about 0 0.06 miles, not even a tenth of a mile, half of a tenth of a mile. For those of you who like, you know, very official and smart sounding math language, half of a tenth of a mile, okay? It's not very far at all. So what was initially given as a gift by God to the people of Israel to, for them to rest, it was a day of rest meant to restore the diminished, the tired, the weary, and the broken. It was a day of rest meant to restore people. It was meant to restore people as they rested and trusted that God had it all under control. That's what was to bring the peace. That's what was to bring the rest. God has it. That's how it was meant. But by the time that we read this text here, it was no longer that really at all. It had become a crushing burden with its 39 prohibited acts. By the way, if you broke one, you could be put to death. I don't really think, and I just want to say this. We're going to talk about this. This may not make a ton of sense right now. Why would God give, give, why would God give the, the Jews such a, such a gift and then them turn it into something so different? Why would that happen? I don't think it happened on purpose. I think it happened accidentally, and I think it happened because of a deep love and devotion to God. Let's leave that right there, and, and we'll talk about that more later. But this right here, this context, is why Jesus says, I think in, Ma in Mark 22, he says, the Sabbath was made for man, not, the man for, not man for Sabbath. In other words, this is a gift to you. It was for you. Now you've made it a thing that you must serve. And then he finishes by saying, the son of man is Lord even of the Sabbath. This is kind of tying back to what he said. The son of man is Lord of forgiveness last week, right? He said, I have the authority to forgive. Now I'm telling you, I'm, I have the authority. I'm Lord of the Sabbath. Whoa. Those are crazy words. Crazy words. If you are a Pharisee or a scribe or any devoted Jewish person in the day. Okay. So what I want to introduce you right now is actually something really cool. Before we move on, we're about to go into Mark 3. But how many of you guys went to kindergarten? Did we, all, did we all pass kindergarten at least? I mean, pretty important. I think in kindergarten you learned or, or were introduced to something pretty cool called show and tell. That, was that everything? Okay. Um, show and tell. My sister brought her hamster once. I won't, never mind. I had a joke. I was, never mind. Okay, I'm going to keep going. <laughs> My sister brought her hamster on show and tell. Show and tell, you know, the thing where you bring something and then you tell them about it. What I want to point out is what's happening here in Mark so far is that Jesus is doing the same thing, only like he's doing it on his head. It's tell and show, right? So last week we saw Jesus say, your sins are forgiven. And then he literally says, um, I forgave his sins so that you could see my power. And then he heals him. So he's like, it's, he's telling him, I have the authority to forgive your sins. And then he shows them what it means, what that looks like. Today, he's going to do the same thing, right? In Mark 2, 23, Jesus tells them, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. And in Mark 3, 1 through 6, he's going to say, he's going to show them what that means. So it's telling and showing. Okay, we're going to see he's telling, then showing, telling, then showing. Okay, here we go. Mark 3, verses 1 through 6. Verse 1. Again, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. 
They watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. Let's stop there. So a man with a withered hand is in, is in, is in the uh, synagogue. Thank you. I kept wanting to say Sabbath. You know, it's my weird brain. A man with a withered hand is in the synagogue. Let, let, let's make sure we understand this, right? So Jesus, did we ever read Mark? We never read Mark 2.23 through 20. Did we read Mark 2.23? We did? I didn't eat my Wheaties. All the best athletes have the Wheaties. Anyway, I'm glad we read it because it makes more sense now, okay? Because I was about to reference it. I'm like, I don't remember reading it. Okay, so <laughs> a moment ago, Jesus is walking through the grain fields, right, with his disciples. And they're just walking. Hopefully it's, hopefully it's less than 200 cubits. They're just walking. And on their way, they're picking heads of grain and eating them. And, and the Pharisees, they're like, hey, you can't do that. That's work. And he's like, okay, come on, like, and he walks through it. I'm the Lord of the Sabbath, that whole thing. So that just happened, right? And now, same day, same people, same kind of story. They're in a synagogue. And they all get in the synagogue. And you can just see that there's, there's Jewish people. There's all kinds of people in the synagogue. This is where they go to worship, right? And they get in there. And the, and the, the uh, Sabbath is on their mind. They just had a conversation about it. And then they see a man with a withered hand. And you can almost see him like, Bill. That man's... That man, that man needs healed. You can almost see them like grabbing each other. They, they, they've seen Jesus walk in, the man of the hand, they just had the conversation about the Sabbath. They're like, oh no, is he gonna do it? It's kind of like, I just kind of picture it like this, right? So you may or may not remember in 2008, the Arizona Cardinals were in the Super Bowl. My son was one and I remember watching it and it's the fourth quarter, right? And and uh, Kurt Warner, you know, t t steps back, throws a dime to Fitz on a, on a slant route. For some reason, they had a linebacker guarding Larry Fitzgerald, which makes no sense. So, so he catches the ball. There's like two or three minutes left in the fourth quarter, right? And he runs past the linebacker. The safety's beat. And all of a sudden, I just grab the person next to me, and my eyes get big. And I go, <gasps> just like that. Have you ever been in a sporting event when you really want your team to win and, and it's about to happen and you're just like, God, God, and you're grabbing the person and shaking them, that kind of thing? That's what I was doing, right? I kind of, I kind of imagine this, okay? I kind of imagine the Pharisees and the scribes are like, God, is he going to do it? They're watching expectantly. They had all this stuff in their mind that was going on that we've read about last week and then this moment in the grain fields and they see this man with a withered hand and they're going, oh, no. Oh, no, 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 no. Is he going to do it? Is he going to do it? So they're watching him. They begin to expectantly watch Jesus to see if he would dare heal the man on the Sabbath and break tradition. Remember, if he were to do such a thing, they would accuse him of breaking the law, a law that is punishable by death. They mean business. They've grabbed the holy scribe next to him, and they're shaking him, watching. Could it be that Jesus would do this, even after all that we just discussed? Let's continue, verse 3. And he said to the man with the withered hand, this is Jesus, come here. And then Jesus said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save a life or to kill? But they were silent. You can almost see when Jesus says, come here, now, you know, because they're like, and now they're like standing up. No, no, like that kind of thing, right? So, you know, to continue the illustration, Larry's fast. 
He catches the ball. If you're a Cardinals fan, you know. You know. Because there's a scene that the, the camera pans like in front of him and he's looking up at the big screen. He's like running at the screen as he's running to the end zone to see if there's anyone behind him. And he's got them. He's got them beat. And I'm lit- at this point, I've no longer just got this guy. I've grabbed onto this one on this side and we're jumping together. We're screaming. We're jumping just like this, right? Because I can picture Larry Fitzgerald hoisting the Lombardi trophy over his head because he's about to score a touchdown. Just like that. Now, although I'm excited, they're kind of frustrated, right? But it, it works. It's Super Bowl Sunday. They've grabbed it like, no, he's not going to do it. And Jesus senses this. Here's what I want to make sure we understand, though. Jesus sees this man in his condition. I, I, feel, like, I feel like a lot of the times we, we read Mark and we just go, look, Jesus likes to poke at the Pharisees. He likes to poke at the scribes. Can I tell you, I really don't think that Jesus wanted to heal this man because... He wanted to poke at the scribes and Pharisees. You know, I think that Jesus wanted to heal the man with a withered hand because he had compassion on him. I think he saw the man and a withered hand, it, it, it actually implies that it's not something he was born with. It's either an injury or some sort of uh, malformation that's come up or maybe some sort of sickness in his hand. It's probably caused a little bit of damage in his life. He may not be able to work as well. And I think Jesus looks at him and he has compassion in his heart. He goes, that poor guy, just like he does you and I. He's not acting here. Jesus is an antagonist. He's, he's, just, he's not doing it just despite the evil scribes that sometimes, you know, people teach this stuff. That, that They're just evil and Jesus is trying to poke. I don't think so. I think just like he loves you and me, has compassion on you and me, he saw the man with a withered hand and thought, man, that poor guy. He feels for the man just as he does for us in our condition. It's his heart for us. And at the same time, he feels the hearts of those around him watching. So he asks a brilliant question. This is what he says. Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save a life or to kill? Another word, another way of putting this is does a day of rest remove my obligation to do good? If someone needs my help and they're .07 miles away or 201 cubits away, can I not help them until tomorrow because it's a day of rest? This is what he's asking. Am I potentially, by doing nothing, doing evil. Remember, these scribes, these Pharisees, these, these Jewish people, they, they know what Jesus can do. They saw it. They saw it a, a, a few days before. They saw it as the paralytic man was, was lowered into the room and Jesus forgives him of his sins and heals him. He doesn't even touch him. Jesus displays great power and authority. They know what he can do. Despite this powerful question, despite, this, despite it, the text says they're silent. Verse 5, and he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. Let's stop there. Why is he angry? Why is he grieved? Why does Jesus get so upset with the scribes and the Pharisees all the time? Have you ever noticed that? The text tells us quite often that Jesus gets upset with the Pharisees, upset at the scribes, annoyed, angry, grieved. It's, it's in there. Why is this? Is it because they're bad? Is it because they're evil? Is it because they're challenging him? I don't think so. I think Jesus loves the scribes. I think he loves the Pharisees. In fact, I know he does. These are God's people. It harkens back to Genesis 12. They're his chosen people, the holy nation, the ones that he set aside 
to, to be a light to the world. I mean, if you read the Old Testament, you see over and over this, this, this narrative of God and Israel and forgiveness and redemption and sin and back and forth. And, and God gave them the law to show them how much they needed him. But they saw the law and said, this is how we make God happy. And then along the, ra- along the way, it just fell off the rails. But I don't think it changed the fact that God loved them, that they were his people. And I know this feeling, right? I'm, I mean, I'm, the, I'm a youth pastor. I've been in youth ministry for, he, at Compass, just 10 years now. And I love these students with all of my heart. I pray for them. I want them desperately to come to know God. But half the time, my job as a youth pastor is to watch when they're not. And countless conversations of we've talked about this. You knew what would happen. And I just want them to know him, but they just don't sometimes. And so I think Jesus wanted this question that he asked them to challenge their way of thinking and change their hearts, but it didn't, not one bit. And so between Jesus and them, Jesus remains the only one willing to show compassion for this man on the Sabbath. And I think it anger and grieved him because they'd rather protect their traditions than see a man healed. Let's continue in verse five. Jesus continues here and he said, he set that mission before in, in, in Mark two and he said, uh, the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Verse 5, continuing, he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him on how to destroy him. What does all this mean? It's really the same way that Jesus healed the paralytic man the week before, was it not? Did he have to touch him? No, last week Jesus said, stand up. This week, Jesus said, stretch out your hand, and his hand is instantly and completely restored. It's a remarkable display of power. The second time we see it, remarkable display of power. But here's the thing that that I want us to wrestle with. According to this text, the the man's hand was healed on command, was it not? Nothing visible, no work actually done by Jesus. He just spoke. And last time I checked, that wasn't one of the 39 prohibited things in the Sabbath that the, that the, um, the, the Jews have, have set up for themselves. Either way, either way, it made them angry. Angry beyond angry. One of the things we do here at Compass Church when we're preparing for a message is we, and you've heard this, a lot of you, that we do what's called R&D. On Wednesdays at 12, we have research and development. So whoever's preaching that week, we'll sit in a room and we'll kind of talk about the text and unpack it, um, make sure we understand what the text is saying, and we'll just kind of discuss it. I have a friend, his name's Justin. Um, He is a Jewish Christian, and uh, I know that he was raised in the Jewish traditions and customs, and so I sent him a text, and I said, hey, could you read Mark 23, Mark 2:23 through 3:6? And just I have a question for you. Like, help me understand why are the Jews so angry? Help me understand their position. And I'm so glad I asked him because what he gave me was, was unbelievable, and I'd like to share it with you. The first thing that he said was this: He said, This would have been perceived as an attack on the core of who they were. 
this healing on the Sabbath day, these Jesus' response walking through the grain field where they're plucking grain and eating it. It would have been an attack on the core of who they were. And what we're watching is their gut reaction to what, to, which to them, it's a reaction to what to them was the most appealing and galling thing that they'd ever seen. Justin told me about how the Sabbath was, was on the uh, very, very top of the priority of what they would guard and protect as their identity as following Christ. And to them, remember, this is not what Jesus is doing. Jesus is not being an antagonist. He's acting out of compassion. But their perception is that he's poking at the core of who they are. And then Justin said something to me that just blew my mind, and I want to unpack it with you. He gave me an, a, a powerful analogy. He said it would be like someone lighting a Bible on fire and then telling you it's okay because they were cold. Think about that. Think about that. I want you to imagine, just with me, that, that, that you're in this story, right? And you're there, and, and, and in fact, you're actually, you're on a walk with Jesus. For whatever reason, you as an individual, you got some time with Jesus, and you're on a walk with him, right? And you brought your Bible, you know, because you're walking with Jesus. You want to have the Bible ready. It's under your arm. You brought the old one that's the most worn down, has the most highlights, the most underlined. So that if Jesus were to question, you know, you could flex a little bit and say, you know, I know this book pretty well, right? And you've got it under your arm, and you're walking. And, and as you're walking through the streets, Jesus stops and he says, hey, can I see your Bible for a second? And you hand it to him and he grabs your Bible, lights it on fire and sets it down next to the homeless man who is clearly cold. The word is everything to us, isn't it? The word of God is everything to us, isn't it? Isn't it how we know God, how we share God's love, how we understand him, how, how we get to know him better? I mean, the word is everything. Is there a chance, though, that we've accidentally, out of a deep love and devotion to God, placed too high of a value on the pages his word is written on? Maybe sometimes, maybe sometimes even more so than his word itself. Because remember, what's sacred about the book? It's the words that are written in it. It's the scripture, the word of God, John 1. This is no small thing to us. But how would you feel if, if someone took your Bible and burned it for a man because he was cold? I think Jesus would have compassion on the homeless man. And with this question, with this analogy, we can hope, hopefully see perhaps for the first time really where this text has the ability to pierce our hearts and challenge us. It's this. I think that you and I are more like the scribes and Pharisees than we'd like to think we are. In fact, I'm going to be honest with you. I think the best place for us Christians in this room is to, is to say in this text, I am the scribes and Pharisees. Because if you're willing to realize that you're more like them than you'd like to think, then I believe that God can really speak to you today because he's been tearing me up all week in this. 
And maybe that helps you understand the anger that we see from the Jews and why they reacted. And they weren't just a little bit angry, guys. The text tells us that they were ready to do anything to silence Jesus. And I mean anything. They were even willing to join forces with the Herodians. Who are they? Well, the Pharisees actually, I dare to say, hated the Herodians. There's political supporters of Herod Herod Antipas, and he's the king that was set up by Rome. And here's here's what the Herodians were cool with and why they didn't like him. The Herodians were willing to allow Rome and all of the Greek culture into the, into their culture. And and what was happening is they were valuing that over the Jewish traditions and customs and and laws that God gave them. So they hated the Herodians because Herodians were trampling on the things that they thought were holy and sacred. But one has come who is challenging and trampling on those things that are holy and and sacred more than the Herodians. So they pair with them in order to find a way to destroy Jesus. That is nuts unprecedented common effort between the Pharisees and the Herodians to destroy Jesus. The only question that was left in their mind is how are we going to do it? Because the crowds love him. There's a question left for us as well. Let's recap real quick. We talked in the beginning about show and tell, tell and show. Remember in Mark 2, 23 through 28, Jesus is telling us that he's the Lord of the Sabbath. He's telling us, and then in Mark 3, 1 through 6, he's showing us what it means when he says, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. The man with the withered hand was broken, hurting, disabled, and Jesus restored him. Do you remember what we said about the Sabbath early on? Do you remember what we said about it? The Sabbath was a day of rest meant to restore the diminished and the tired and the weary and the broken as they trusted God. Do you remember that? Do you see a similarity? Jesus did for this man what the Sabbath was meant for. He restored him. Mark 2, he tells us he's the Lord of the Sabbath. Mark 3, he shows us what that means and what he literally meant. What Jesus was actually saying was, I am Sabbath. And I want each of us here today to see what Jesus was trying to say to these Jewish leaders. He's, he's, he's showing and saying, I am rest. I am restoration. I am healing. I am Sabbath. It's the big idea. Jesus is putting it simply. I am rest. I came to restore the diminished, the tired, the weary, and the broken. I think he's looking at them saying, do you see what I just did? Can you open your eyes and see that I just Sabbathed this man? And I can do the same for you if you'd stop protecting and defending your religion and the burdens you've let it place on you. Sabbath was made for you, not you for, the, for it. And if you look to me, I will open your eyes and you will see that you're staring at rest himself. And if you and I are more like the Pharisees and the scribes than we'd like to think, then the question is, does God want to open our eyes to something that we can't see as well? I think the answer is yes. You see, just like the Pharisees, there's a need that exists in each of us that runs very, very deep. It's the need to know that we're good, that we're good with God, that we're doing what it takes to make God happy. 
And when we don't feel like we're doing what it takes to make God happy, then we want to know exactly what it looks like. What T's to cross, what I's to dot, what, do, what do's and don'ts, what stops and starts. Tell me what I got to do to please God. And so just like the Pharisees, accidentally, we tend to make good gifts from God burdens on ourselves and others. And we think, I have to love my neighbor to please God. I have to read my Bible to please God. I have to take communion. I have to go to church. I have to listen to only Christian music. I have to raise good and nice kids. I have to be a good mom or dad. I have to make sure my marriage works. I have to, I have to, I have to. Because if I don't, well, I don't even want to think about how upset that makes God. Guys, these are all good things. They're all things that we should do, that we need to do, that we grow closer to God when we do. But that's not the point of them. It's just to do them, to make God happy. I think it happens slowly and unintentionally for all of our identity, our self-worth, and our effort to go in performing and then we're slowly drawn away from the person of Jesus and somehow we begin to believe if I perform, if I obey, I'm accepted. And our faith in Jesus can quickly and easily become simply religion. I don't think we allow these things to supersede our walk with God on purpose, nor do I think that when we see them, ha that, that when they happen, that we can see it coming. And I think in most cases, if not all, I think it's an accident. I know that's true for me. I never meant it to be that way. And I think it also starts with a heart of love and devotion to God. And, and, that's, that's, and, and that's why religion itself isn't the problem. It's not like religion is a bad thing. I mean, our last series, right? We looked at Acts chapter 2 and the early church came together. They came together. They were one mind and they were unified and they were organized and they were doing things that honored each other and honored God. And the, and the outcome of that was that they had favor with all people. I'm not saying that religion is a bad thing. I'm not saying it, devotion to God as we do things like that is a bad thing. The problem is not religion. The problem is what our hearts want to do with it. Somewhere along the way, just like the scribes and Pharisees did, we begin to look at, at these things which were meant to draw us closer to God as things that make God happy. It's almost an advice. But with Jesus, he brings something completely different. He doesn't bring us simply religion. He brings us good news. And what is the good news? The news is that he's going to do everything that needs to be done so that you don't have to do anything but put your trust in him. Don't you see it? Because of the good news, the announcement that Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, came and died on the cross and rose three days later because he defeated death, because he did it. You don't have to and you can rest. There's nothing you need to do. Jesus paid the price. He did it all. Through him you are forgiven, redeemed, and fully accepted. Nothing more needs to be done. You are free. He did it all. If you're in this room today, you don't necessarily have a relationship with God yet or you're seeking or you're, you're wondering like, what does all this mean? I, I just want to say this to you. In this life, this world demands a lot from you. I know that because I live in this world just like you do. But no matter what you've been taught or perceived, God does not. 
You don't need to get better. You don't need to clean up your life. You don't need to change your behavior before you can come to God because Jesus did everything that needs to be done on the cross. So right now, if that's you, if you're in this room and you're like, man, I... I, I just don't know. I, I, I've never really had a relationship with God. And I, but you're right. The burdens, like, do me a favor. I invite you to simply, right now, take a deep breath. Calm your heart. God wants you exactly the way you are. And when you give him your heart, when you give him the right, his rightful seat in your life as king, he'll forgive you of all your sin and you can finally rest. You can rest knowing that you're fully and completely accepted and forgiven and adopted by God because of Jesus. And not only can you rest, but when you give your life to Jesus, you can also begin to marvel at the reality that there's nothing more I need to do. Because it's in the marveling and the worshiping and the gratitude that you begin to feel for God, that you fall deeper in love with Jesus. And it's in that love, God's love, that comes in and transforms our heart. And then we begin to act different and do different and be better, not because we were supposed to, but because of what he did. Because I am accepted, because I am forgiven, therefore I obey. Because of what Jesus did, not because I have to. I invite you. Would you allow Jesus to become the king of your heart, the king of your life? And would you allow him to give you rest? I'm going to have the band come up. We're going to close in a song. If you're in this room and, and you're a Christian and, and you've, been, you've been trying to follow God your whole life, I have a question for you. What is exhausting you? What do you need rest from? What is just weighing you down? You see, Sabbath was meant to restore people as they rested and trusted that God had it all under control. Rested and trusted in the fact that Jesus has done it all for us. So I have a question. What would it look like for you to rest in him? What would it look like for you to give him your burden and to experience Sabbath and rest? Christian, this week, I, I want you to identify one thing, and, and it can be more, but I, I really want you to focus on one thing that is absolutely draining you. Is it something from work? Is it something financial? Is it, some, is it raising your kids or your grandkids? Is it school? Is it your marriage? Is it trying to be a perfect Christian? I want you to identify one thing, and when you get in your connection group this week, I want you to tell your group what that thing is. And then through prayer and accountability and, and, and thoughtfulness, I want you to give that thing to God. Place it in his hands. And I want you to rest knowing that he's God and he can do a better job with it because you're not God. And in that, I think no matter what your burden is, you'll find a peace that surpasses understanding. The song we're about to sing is meant for you. 
like to invite you not to sing. I'd like you just to listen and pray and ponder and let God speak because he's done it all and you don't have to. Built another temple to a stranger. I give away my heart to the rushing wind. I set my course to run right into danger. Set the company of fools instead of friends. been unfaithful lovers in lies while well, you're turning over tables with the rage of a jealous kind I chose the gallows to the eyes thought that love would never find and hanging ropes will never keep you in your love of a jealous kind love of a jealous kind Jump away from rock that keeps on spreading For solace in the shift of the sinking sand I'd rather feel the pain all too familiar Than the broken by a lover I don't understand Cause I don't understand been unfaithful lovers in lies while you're turning over tables with the rage of a jealous kind I chose the gallows to the eyes thought the love would never find but hanging ropes will never keep you in your love of a jealous kind love of a jealous kind The love of a jealous kind Whoa. 100 other lovers More 100 other altars If I should slow my pace Find this subject me to grace and love that shames the wise Betrays the heart, deceit and lies Breaks the back of foolish pride. You know I've been unfaithful, lovers and lies. While you're turning over tables with the rage of a jealous cat, I chose the gallows to the eyes that the love would never find. Hanging ropes will never keep you. In your love of a jealous kind Love of a jealous kind Yeah, yeah Love of a jealous kind Whoa Love of a jealous kind 
God, I just pray for us today. Unfortunately, Lord, it's easy. It's all too easy, Lord, to to turn our attention and our devotion to doing the right thing above loving you. Lord, I'm just so grateful that you rest. I'm so grateful that you have compassion. I'm so grateful that you've done it all so I don't have to. Lord, help me to learn how to rest in that and stop trying to take it in my own hands. Help me to learn how to live in the shadow of the good news and the grace that you've brought us, God. Help me to learn how not to make it about what I do, but rest in what you've done. And as I do that, God, make me more like you for your glory for the salvation of, the wor- of those in this world who don't know you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.